This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today, we have an incredible guest on Dreamland. Ronnie Pontiac is with us. Ronnie Pontiac was part of a legendary rock group with Tamara Lucid called Lucid Nation. And Ronnie and Tamara have created a book about the Orphic Hymns. You probably don't know what the Orphic Hymns are. I was familiar with them years ago, but this really opened my eyes to a new kind of power that is available to us through music. Uh, Ronnie is a, uh, is a, what a con, what are you, Ronnie? You are, you're first, you're a musician. You are the author of one of the great classics about metaphysics called American Metaphysical Religion. Um, you are, you were for seven years, the assistant of one of the most extraordinary people in all of esoteric work and literature, Manly P. Hall. Welcome to Dreamland. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, we're going to get into the Orphic hymns and, you know, we need magic now. That's why I keep going back to areas of interest that are, uh, are related to magic because we've lost magic. We've lost our magic. But let's start by going back into the past a little bit uh, to uh, Lucid Nation and you and Tamara and what you were doing when you started rocking. How did you get into that? Well, I had I had become a musician as a teenager. And at that time, I was a feral, criminal little runt with no sense of social contract. And my band was very negative, but I was very fortunate. And I met Tamara. She asked me to rescue her one night at a club, and I did. We fell in love, and that changed my life. And between then and then becoming a musician with her, was the time that we spent with Manley Hall. And at the end of the seven years, he took me aside and said, I, I want you to go. I want you to go out into the world and make your own way now. And he explained to me that he could see that for himself and many of the wonderful elders that ran the place, that time was short. And he expected that there would be a bitter power struggle for all the resources and wealth of the philosophical research society when he passed and we were kids he didn't want us to be around any of that he wanted us to go have our own lives somewhere else and i took that as a test and i kept sticking around and trying to work for him and finding things to do and but but he kept pushing and giving me a cold shoulder. And it eventually turned into me visiting him and saying, well, what if I go back to school? I'd, I'd gotten into Duke and Harvard for graduate work. And, but he didn't think that was a good idea for me. And there were other ideas. And then finally I said, well, I, I came out of music before I came to you. Maybe I should go back to music. And he nodded. Yes. 
which surprised me because he didn't like that kind of music, at least around the time that I knew him, aggressive guitar-driven music, and he knew that that's what I would be doing. He maybe was tired of hearing the question. <laughs> he just took the, the most recent answer, but he also was very aware of my chart and Tamara's chart, and we trusted that, that he had a vision as to what was healthy for us or not. And what I think he was seeing now in retrospect is it was really the one choice that I could make that allowed Tamara to find her voice and her destiny. Because originally when I returned to music, I was trying to do it on my own as I had been when I met her and I couldn't find musicians to work with. There were, there were musicians everywhere, but they were all about things that I wasn't interested in and nobody was interested in the kind of thing that I wanted to do. At long last, Tamara said, and to quote her, if those morons can play guitar, so can I. Yeah. And she said, she said, give me time to learn. And I said, yeah, well, let's learn together. Let's, let's learn guitar and bass. And so that's, that's when we started to play together. And she emerged as the leader of the band, the lead vocalist, the person that everybody wanted to interview and a, a tremendous lyricist, poet, improviser. And it was, it's kind of amazing. And we wonder if he saw that, if he understood yeah. that she needed an opportunity to blossom and that music was the place where she could find it. But in any event, his suggestion led to her finding herself as much as me doing so. We're going to take a brief break for the free side. We'll be right back. We're talking to Ronnie Pontiac, his new book with Tamara Lucid, The Ma or Magic of the Orphic Hymns. Uh, and, and it is a an extremely powerful, subtle book. Uh, you will learn in it what the Orphic Hymns were, where they came from, and you will read their new translation of these hymns, which, in my opinion, brings them to really to life in a new way. Before we go down the road to the Orphic hymns too much farther, I want to ask you, Rand, uh, uh, if you can tell me the t time period we were just talking about when Lucid Nation was a, an active rock group, and then we're going to go into how you met Manly Hall. And Okay. So uh, we... We started out in the mid nineties and we, we were very fortunate because there was a scene at that time that was called riot girl. It was a sub scene of the punk scene and it was very DIY, very intellectual, very idealistic in its own way. Uh, he, it's, it's, you generally thought of as being a bunch of uh, white college kids, women, in the Pacific Northwest, but here in Southern California, it was mostly Hispanic and Asian girls and not nearly so many white people. And there were some uh, groups in the Riot Girl loosely knit community that accepted uh, males like me. And so I had the, the distinction of being able to play a lot of Riot Girl conventions and seeing the bands and and seeing the scene and, and all the zines, these kind of little handmade uh, pamphlets that they would all, all create using cut and paste methods and they would write or share their art in them. And it was a movement that was devoted to truth. It, it devalued technique and 
uh, all the old virtues of professional music industry, rock and roll. It was all about direct expression, expressing the truth of one's life, and especially the kind of truths that at that time weren't discussed. So this was in a way almost like a Me Too movement a couple decades or more before that movement happened. And people would really warn other people even about bands in the scene that had members who were uh, dangerous uh, if, the, if girls were alone with them. And it turned into this amazing network of people. And Tamara was one of the first Riot Girls to bring Riot Girl online, uh, doing so through America Online back in the day. And, and apparently she did the first Riot Girl chat. Uh, or or it could have been at that time a, a room that everybody met in. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that movement, it, for a short time, it burgeoned. It had a lot of influence. And we were able, for example, to tour the nation without involving any professional music industry elements, just by fans and bands within the scene helping each other and the support of the all-ages clubs which in the immediate future were doomed to be wiped out as if there was some kind of plan to get rid of the, the minor leagues of the music industry. But at that time, they were still there. And it was a really amazing thing. You could sleep on the floor of your fans' uh, parents' living room or, or uh, drive 48 hours to get from one gig to the other. It was crazy, but, but lots of fun. And I learned so much by being around these brilliant women who were we're talking about the truth of their lives. It really uh, woke me up to, to what women faced. And at the time, no one was talking about it. So they were, they were like a little revolution that, that had a big effect. Yeah. You know, in the nineties, Anne and I were sort of in the process of moving away from rock and into classical music because of the visitors who inspired in both of us, a, such a, sense of order, a, a very different kind of gestalt than we had had before. But I do remember, I, it, I wonder, there must have been Riot Girls bands that went to CBGB's in New York. And Oh, yeah. I don't remember the names of the ones we went to, but Anne was very, in the early 90s, I guess when it must have just been starting, she was really interested in this. She was very much of a feminist, and this was something that she thought was incredibly cool. So we went to some some of the of the I tried to find out my brother's an entertainment lawyer and he went to CBGB's with us a few times but he couldn't remember either whether what the bands were anyway I know only this that they were right girl bands and and but then we drifted away from rock completely and I'm sort of sort of half in and a half out now I'm kind of getting back into some elements of it uh, but. Um, the classical music thing kind of took us over. and Yeah. Well, so. you know, it was a revolution, all that kind of music. And, but the thing is that, that in our world today, speaking about those things or uh, even celebrating the aspects of life that, that rock celebrated is something that isn't revolutionary anymore because it's been so digested by our culture it's used in TV commercials. Most of the concepts are things that, that people are aware of today. And yeah. which is, it's, it's, it's kind of a different world because people don't understand that like before the internet, some of, the, some of us as kids got our information through records and through the radio. 
And if, if a band wrote a song about something, that's, that's how we would learn about it. You know, the economics of it have been crushed because there's nothing there. My brother, I was talking to him the other day uh, when we were, t- we were talking about you actually, and uh, about, about, uh, lucid uh, nation and Tamara and everything, and he's very, very knowledgeable about rock and roll. Obviously, I mean, because he's, you know, he's, it's his business and part of his business as an attorney. And um, he um, uh, he was saying that the the industry has finally perfected a way of not really paying anybody. Except the executives. Yeah, tell us a little (laughs) bit about, because executives are making money, but there's nothing, he he said that bringing a new rock group up now is almost impossible because they can't make enough money starting out to keep going. There's no contracts that are going to come to them that'll give them a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the perfect storm for the rockers, but uh, the executives have achieved the ideal situation. Yeah. And also not just the wealth is all being streamed to them, but also the control that they now have. And most of these deals are what they call 360 deals. So they, not only do they own the, the band's name and image and all that, but they, they take a percentage of anything the band does t shirt sales at gigs Right. And I've actually heard stories from friends who still tour about the label sending people to the gigs to keep an eye on how many T-shirts are selling. So exactly. they make sure to get their cut. So, yeah, it's it's it really changed. I mean, it was always a terrible business on the professional side. You had you had some exceptions. You had people like Danny Goldberg who cared deeply for artists, managers and and record company executives who really believed in the business as a way of changing society. And they wanted to support these brilliant artists that they admired, but there were so many exploiters and so much criminality. The beauty for us in Lucid Nation was that we, we really were late to this show, but the indie world had turned into this huge alternative universe and DIY was, was big. There was a lot of people who, wanted to support DIY. So we became our own record label and we sold our records and t-shirts and whatever else we made through a network of, of shops and, and fan based kind of little groups that were meeting about various different causes and uh, all the gigs that, that the riot girl bands around here did, including us, we would be gathering uh, cans of food for the homeless clothes for shelters for uh, women who've been escaping abusive relationships or for again for homeless people or uh, just trying to to be involved in the, in the community in positive ways often with an organization called food not bombs which would make like these giant pots of soup and rice and things and sometimes they were feeding punks at shows and sometimes they were feeding homeless people in the park and punk people would show up or a band like us would be pressed into service because they needed somebody in the kitchen to peel the carrots and then the potatoes. And we had time before it was time for us to go on. We just loved that scene. People were very uh, literate and 
uh, kids who well, I can't I can't forget the first time we went to a Riot Girl show in East LA and and the band's playing and then the band stops and all the kids sit down on the floor to read. Yeah. I seem to remember it being like, I think they had a lot of handouts and stuff. Yes. Oh, it yes. was a, it was a very, it was an attempt to make a new culture, an empowered feminine culture. Yes. And, and to let people know what was happening to them. And yeah, I, yeah. I had experiences that were horrifying in terms of just, you know, being at a convention and there's going to be a workshop about, uh, for for women who'd been raped and and seeing 150 women pile into this room to talk about, I mean it was it was chilling you know you realized yeah. how monstrous what was going on under the surface in society really is and I have to say I had to to confront in myself all kinds of ingrained uh, control issues and and just ma- you know just things that that we learn growing up as boys that that's that's what it means to be masculine. And some of these things are quite damaging and, and we don't really even recognize it until we listen to women. So those little paper zines could change your life and did because when you read these truths and, and, and they also often were wonderful writers and many of these girls went on to be college professors and professional writers and filmmakers. It's, it's really, it's beautiful to see lawyers. I mean, it's, it's really something. So we could survive that way. We could make a little money, pay for all our gear, uh, get out on the road and, and, and still be able to live just being an indie band like that. Well, first there was a, a concerted attack on live music. On one side, it came from, I think, Ticketmaster and Live Nation who became monopolies. They were driven by conservative money. And I believe that that part of the reason that they did that and made concerts so ridiculously expensive was because they wanted to close off the music industry that had evolved from the 1960s. Things like Rock for Choice, where big bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were headlining shows to get kids to sign up uh, to register for voting so that they could vote in people who would support Roe versus Wade and and other rights uh was the, the music industry was powerful in, in getting those kids active and i do believe that it was something that that was concocted as a way not only to profit but also to do a little cultural engineering against the music industry and around the same time there was this phenomenon of local city councils and fire departments and inspectors suddenly invoking laws and rules that had been ignored for, in some cases, for 10 or 20 years in these all-ages clubs that acted like the minor leagues for the next generation of bands. And suddenly they were told, you don't have enough parking places, or the noise is too loud at night, or you don't have enough bathrooms for the amount of people. And these places were all shut down. At the same time, something that was really also chilling, we used to get these letters from young bands. We were always helping bands that were trying to start out. We would get them gigs. We would give them advice and and help up the next generation of musicians. And then we started getting all these letters that talked about how they they couldn't be bands because you would hang out with your friends skateboarding and your friends were in your band, your high school kids and maybe it's your first band, and you're out there smoking weed, 
and a cop sees you and you're busted. And then the court orders you to stay away from those two friends until you turn 18. And, and now you can't be in a band with them. And we got a number of, of letters like that bands that broke up because they were doing the normal teenage thing of exploring their boundaries and exploring substances, which is so much more dangerous now back then it was, it was safer comparatively. And, and so the, the result was that these they were shut off from it. And then there became an economic factor, which was that there wasn't the the money to buy gear anymore. I mean, it's expensive to buy strings and drumsticks and drum skins and the, the it's it's expensive stuff. So kids now were given the choice between get some software and make music that way by yourself in your bedroom, <laughs> excuse me, or you know, spend a bunch of money, learn how to play complicated instruments, find people to play with. And you had asked earlier about uh, what the span of the band has been. Um, we haven't done much in, in, I would say, the last, you know, five to six years because in part, of course, COVID, but we couldn't find people to play with at a certain point. Uh, living in Los Angeles is becoming increasingly so expensive and it's so difficult for musicians to to be able to survive here that almost every musician that we knew moved away. And this is problematic, too, because they move to smaller towns that often don't that aren't big enough to support a music scene. So they move to smaller towns hoping to find musicians to play with, but they find that it's very limited. So all of this is kind of came together, as you said, into a perfect storm that that did uh it really did destroy the music business and yeah i would add one more chilling observation to all this which is that i often look at stories about especially high school kids who commit acts of violence and think that's probably somebody who would have in my world been the singer in a punk band uh, I myself was somebody that I, Lord knows what I would have done had I been able to get hold of a weapon when I was in high school. And but I found music and music accepted my anger and my frustration and reinvented me and found, <clears throat> excuse me, found me friends and 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 a future. So now if you're an angry kid, there really isn't anywhere to put it. You know, games. That's right. Games know. help a little bit, but mm-hmm. there's no there's no place to put it that's real. Yeah. There's no place in the real world to put it. Yeah. There's nowhere to stand up and let it get out of you. Yeah. And also the other thing that was beautiful about it was the music was a sanctuary for freaks and for outcasts. So yeah, that's right. A runt kid like me who was an immigrant family's kid and who spoke with an accent when I was a kid and got beat up pretty much all the way through school until I found music and transformed into this long hair who had these scary friends. And and suddenly it was a completely different world. I was somebody that was feared instead of somebody that was attracting bullies. And there was an element of that in the music and in that whole underground culture world that was was i think very healthy for people who were needing a place to be able to rebel and do it in a creative way instead of a destructive violent way i get it i really get it and i understand it very well 
I wonder if we took a second break. I, uh, do you recall? No. Neither do I. Okay. Well, yeah, we're going to take. We did not. We did not. We did not. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a break now, uh, and we'll be right back. I'm very bad about forgetting about breaks because, but that doesn't mean I don't think you should do what we're asking you to do, which is largely get incredibly cool books and and get yourself involved in this website. We don't really sell ads. Um, Ronnie Pontiac has a new book out called The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, written with his friend and longtime friend now, Tamara Lucid. He is the author of uh, an American, American metaphysical religion. He spent seven years of his life as the assistant to one of the all-time great uh, proponents and 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 uh, of esoterica and esoteric literature, Manly P. Hall. He is a truly a remarkable American institution, and I'm sure it's a shock to hear yourself called an institution because <laughs> you, you have been you have been flying above the whole world of institutions all of your adult life ever since you got past the bullying phase that hit you when you were young. Okay. Uh, I, uh, if anyone, you know, we have, we are in the grip of a monster and that monster has been coming, is, uh, curling its tentacles around us for a long time. It's the monster of the material world. And we are losing touch with another world that is still very real, although beginning to struggle. And I, you know what I want to do? I, uh, thinking about uh, your book and the connection between um the 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 natural world and human enchantment that has been broken and i i see your journey the magic of the orphic hymns as an attempt to re-enchant us i want to read something from this is one of my favorite authors it's apulius the uh, ancient Roman author of Metamorphosis and just a great writer with a fabulous sense of humor. Back in the old days when I was a fairly bad Latinist, I'm not one at all now. I used to enjoy reading Apuleius because of all of his puns. Yeah. But I want to read this. is What is this? He's, he's giving a lecture in some town. It doesn't say which town. He used to go from city to city and set up shop in someone's house or something and word would get around that he was there and people would come and pay a little bit to listen to him lecture. And that's how he made his living. Okay, this is a description of walking through the countryside in a time when we were still connected to the enchantment and power of the world. It is the usual practice, he writes, of wayfarers with a religious disposition when they come upon a sacred grove or holy place by the roadside to utter a prayer, offer an apple, 
pause for a moment from their journeying, so I, on entering the revered walls of your city, feel that for all my haste, it is my duty to ask your favor to make an address to break the speed of my journey. I cannot conceive what could give a traveler juster cause to halt in a sign of reverence. And now listen to this. No altar crowned with flowers, no grotto shattered with foliage, no oak bedecked with horns, no beech garlanded with the skins of beasts, no mound whose engirdling hedge proclaims its sanctity, no tree trunk hewn into the semblance of a god, no turf still wet with libations, no stone a stream with precious unguents. For these are but small things, and though they there be a few that seek them out and do them worship, the majority do not and pass them by. Those were all things made by people wanting to recognize the sanctity of nature and to see it in the context of deity. And already in the Roman world, we were beginning to pass nature by. Now it's gone, and not only are we passing it by, it's collapsing around our ears. Ronnie, what do we do? It's not an easy question, but I know it's one you can do great things with. Well, thank you. Well, I would I would begin by reminding our listeners that we have all of eternity in which to learn and that the material world is a sort of laboratory where we and, and all other aspects of being are learning. So it's okay to be making mistakes as, as horrific as the mistakes are and as their consequences are. We are still beings that can learn from these experiences. And we will discover as we move on that what we thought was so huge and complex and overwhelming and spectacular was in comparison to the truth of ourselves, rather flat and two-dimensional and a little black and white. As many people report when they have near-death experiences and feel that liberation that's often described as, as almost like a relief from claustrophobia. So we have the nature of the world that we're living in. And, and now, so what do we do? If we know that, if we know that we are these souls that are here embarking on our discovery of, of ourselves and of, of the world and of the deities and of all the great mysteries that hide behind the words that we use to describe them, which really only limit our own perception of them. Well, we have within us this infinite light, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the Orphic hymns and, and their, what they're teaching. Yes. The Orphic hymns are all about remembering, and they're about remembering the sacredness of nature and our own divinity. And so when we're faced with a situation like this, the more of us that can let's say, regain our senses and our memory so that we have access to this phenomenal uh, human spirit that has over and over again faced terrible, disastrous situations and has used creativity and inspiration and the help of the gods and, 
and every other means to survive and to ultimately flourish. If the awakening of enough of us can occur, that we can have the kind of creativity that happened when the Renaissance happened, for example, yeah. when there have been other explosions of, of science and of understanding and of human commitment and of cooperation and compassion. And, and so we are faced with this challenge that there's a book um, called uh, A Garden of Our Dreams uh, written by Brian Griffith, who identifies throughout history this pattern where human beings go somewhere that's fertile, we flourish. As we flourish, we start to grant rights to, even in our society, people who suffer persecution for who they are. So this would be uh, gay and lesbian people. This would be women in general, people of color who who are not uh, are indigenous to the area, who were indigenous to the area, but who were wiped out by by the people who came and settled. And suddenly they find themselves treated like citizens and they're given rights and women can inherit property and such. But then the certification occurs. It can be because there's a climate shift that's happened in human history many times before. It can be because we just like locusts consume everything in the area and we run out of stuff because we keep reproducing. And, and then as soon as this happens, as soon as the, the water starts to dry up, as soon as the food distribution begins to break down, there's a tendency for militaristic men, autocrats to assert power and to disempower, to begin a, a, a very careful process of disempowering the people who had gained power during the better times. And I feel, unfortunately, it's, it must be that crossroads again that humanity stands at, perhaps the most monumental ever, because there are already people making the argument that it would require fascism to survive what's coming, that only fascism is organized and quick enough to be able to do what must be done and to force the people to comply. And this is, a, is an idea uh, in a movement called the third position that is, is being aggressively uh, promulgated amongst young people who are interested in paganism and in, in alternative esoteric religion. So I feel that for all of us who, who are working on our spiritual paths, that the first thing for us to do is to, to learn as much as we can about, about what's going on, to connect as deeply as we can with our sources and to have faith that, that the genius that has to be there is going to be there. And in fact, that the generations that are being born, I could explain this astrologically, but let's just say that the kids who are about 14 and under and the kids who are coming after them over the next 20 years are going to be at a level that is so far beyond the generations that are now experiencing uh, what it's like to try to, to make the earth work. And they will grow up in a world where things that frighten us, like uh, robotics and artificial intelligence, will be tools that they're they use with the the ease that you know we used to ride our bikes. And so, if we can have faith in the future, in them, and and in our own souls, and our ability to to in our own little corner of the universe do something that matters, to to create something beautiful 
to be an example to others, to be a friend who protects nature and, and teaches children to appreciate nature just among our family and acquaintances. All of these, these, these gestures, planting flowers that attract and support butterflies and bees, uh, supporting people and laws and government that make sure that, that wild animals can travel through so that there are not these, these monstrous suburbs that are created that lock out nature completely. Yeah. And all those kinds of things can contribute to helping the world turn around. And so what we're after is what the Rosicrucians used to call a universal reformation. Everything has to change. We have to learn how to do everything better and, and, and less destructively. And that's going to be as filled with opportunity and with wonder as it is going to be filled with chagrin and loss. Well, you know, uh, you know, I know quite a few kids in the age group you're talking about, and they are, the ones I know at least, are just radically different from their parents and from certainly from my generation. My son growing up was much closer to what I was like than the kids in the, in the 14, 15 year old age group are now. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's quite amazing. I, I would, I would say that they have an entirely different relationship with the, with fundamental human identity mm -hmm. than we do. And, and not all of them. I mean, a lot of them are pretty much the kids you, you know, we're used to seeing. Yeah. But uh, some of them are just really uh, in a completely different space. Now, you mentioned the Rosicrucians, and that gets me to my memories of American metaphysical religion. And you point out in that book that the Rosicrucian, that first, America was not founded by, a, by Christians. America was founded by a very much more complex group of people. The founding fathers were not all Christians. And in fact, they were working hard to make sure that no one religion could ever be imposed on the entire country by yeah. its government. Yeah. That's why we have freedom of religion. But you yeah. make a, I remember a fascinating part of American metaphysical religion where you talk about the Rosicrucians and their part in the founding of America. And I wonder if you could go back to that. Uh, it's sure. not, it's fairly far from the Orphic hymns on the surface. But when we talk later about the power of hymns, maybe we'll begin to understand something new. So go ahead. Okay. So, yes, what shocked me when I started looking into all the new research coming out of academia about American history, that was finally looking into these areas, was that I found esotericism here going back really four centuries all the way back to some of the earliest traders and and fishermen and such who came here and had interactions with indigenous people. When the Huguenots got here uh, about 200 years before the country was founded uh, or declared a nation, they brought with them alchemists and, and practicing astrologers. Even amongst the founders from England, first there were competing groups so in the earliest days, yes, you have the Puritans here, but you pretty soon after started to get the other side of what would become the English Civil War showing up, which were the Cavaliers. 
the Royalists. That, that's my family. My family were Cavaliers. The uh, my mother's side of my family. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Well, these were people to explain to your listeners. These were people who were uh, wonderful uh, lovers of life who who were into Shakespeare. And they they were always declaiming poetry, often body poetry filled with obscene puns. And, yeah, and they were usually like in my family. That's <laughs> they're royalists and and they were known for their long hair and their pointy beards and their mustaches kind of look like musketeers in our mythology. And quite the opposite of the Puritans, who were a younger generation, very serious they weren't supposed to run. You weren't supposed to laugh. You you weren't supposed to sing. You you weren't supposed to dance. Everything was so controlled and so solemn and serious. Uh, they were a reaction against the Cavaliers who they thought of as drunken uh, pirates, really. And well, that wasn't t- totally wrong. That's true. The Cavaliers folks were in Virginia, the Virginia colony, and the Puritans were in the New England colony and the Massachusetts colony. Mm-hmm. And the twain did not meet. Fortunately, well, there were very few roads. There was one very notorious conflict at the very beginning, which I write about in depth. A fellow who got the nickname the Pagan Pilgrim. Um, he never really was a pilgrim, but he was a cavalier. His name was Thomas Morton. And he was sent by the, the royalists to compete with this colony that was really taking shape in Boston. And Tom Morton was the first American, I call him an American because he was so American. He was the first American to be banned in Boston. He was the first American to have a loud party shut down for being too wild. He was the first, (laughs) he was, he was the first American to be foreclosed upon by a corporation because the Puritans were a corporation and they, they did, foreclose on him. They also burned down the trading post that he built. And and he they they persecuted and prosecuted him. He he called Miles Standish Captain Shrimp and described how Standish nearly murdered him when he was arrested. And and there was this propaganda coming from the pilgrims claiming that there were wild parties on May Day with a big Maypole going on at this trading post that had included pirates and indigenous tribes and traders and all kinds of nefarious characters. And they claimed that there were orgies breaking out and it was just all kinds of satanic activity. But Tom Morton said that it was really more civilized than a party back home in England and that the, the indigenous women were, were far more modest than the girls back home and that everybody got along great, and they were all interested in each other's dreams and their cultures and their activities. And to me, that place, which was called Marymount, was a real beginning of of that other side of America, because there really are these two sides of America typified by this conflict. There's the Puritan side, which is there's one way to do it, and it's our way. And if you don't do it our way, which is God's way, then you are Satan and you're in trouble. And then there's Tom Morton. I want to hear everything about who do you worship? What do your dream? Do your dreams have meaning to you? How do you treat your, your children? And I want to know all about this and share all this information so that we can all benefit. And the Puritans didn't want to learn from the indigenous people and they were afraid to be in the wilderness. So, for example, 
John Winthrop, the elder, the first governor of uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, famously got uh, stuck in the woods at nightfall and was so terrified to just be in the woods of New England at night that he started running in a panic and he happened upon a menstrual hut built by indigenous women and he hid in it. And when a woman came to use it for the purpose it was intended, he chased her out and he, they started calling him a crazy man in the local tribe. And now, but let's say this about the pilgrims, because they were also not as Christian as they are made out to be. And what could I possibly mean saying that about Puritans? Well, John Winthrop, the elder's son, John Winthrop, the younger, is a perfect example. He would become the governor, the first governor, the founder, really, of Connecticut territory. But as a youth, when he was 18 and he came to London, he, in, in uh, I believe it was 1624, he ran into the ideas of Rosicrucianism. He ran into the Kabbalah, and he was very excited about the Rosicrucians. And he and a friend went to Europe, as many other well-to-do European young people did at that time, to find Rosicrucians. They failed to find anybody that they thought was the real thing, so John Winthrop the Younger had the idea, well, why don't we just live up to the ideals of the Rosicrucians? And he did all his life. And he was somebody who collected the books and manuscripts of John Dee, the notorious influence on the Rosicrucians, the court yeah. wizard and astrologer of right. Queen Elizabeth II. And when he came to America in 1631 or 1632 to follow his father, his crates of alchemical laboratory gear and, and books on astrology and such were marked with the ultimate symbol of esotericism, which was John Dee's Monus Hieroglyphica. And I, I, I liken that to a Southern Baptist minister's kid putting pentagrams on his luggage. <laughs> but it was no issue, though, because actually John Winthrop the Elder encouraged his son to set up a laboratory in his house in Boston to do alchemical experiments that involved the use of astrology and of ideas that were gleaned out of paganism. Ultimately, he became John Winthrop the Younger, a famous alchemist who would always go to this one particular mountain and come back with these gold rings of the purest gold anybody had ever seen. And he became what was known as an intelligencer, which was like a cultural hub for the future of science and philosophy. All these people like him who were experimenting with science and industry, and but also with, with Rosicrucian ideas and Kabbalistic ideas and, and astrology were, were writing to each other and, and sharing the instruments they were inventing and sharing the results of their experiments and really moving forward human culture in a big way. And he, in fact, wanted to start something called the College of Light, which was going to, he was going to collect all the geniuses from around the world, all the intelligencers, and bring them to America in order to, to just have free, unlimited creativity. And, and that failed because of an indigenous uprising, a war that scared off most of them. But it did lead to the establishment of the Royal Society in, in England. And that, of course, was a huge boon to science. When he was eulogized by his friend, one of the most notorious of all the American Puritans, 
uh, Cotton Mather, who was known for being involved in the Salem witch trials. And Cotton Mather eulogized him as Christ, uh, a Hermes Christianus, which means the Christian Hermes. And Hermes is the pagan god of wisdom, is the source. Whichever pagan you go to, the Greek god Hermes, or you go to Hermes thrice greatest, it's pagan all the way through. It's, it's hermeticism. Right. And here is this, this supposedly pure-blooded Puritan describing someone he admires who was his dear friend and who was a great doctor, I should add, an alchemical doctor who was famous all through the territory for the quality of his cures, and everyone depended on him. He also defended indigenous tribes from each other and from the Boston colony. But he described him as, as something that no Christian that we, we would think would ever use, a, a, Herm, a Christian Hermes. You know, it's interesting to listen to you and to reflect on how very dangerous something that's going on in many of our schools right now in states, it is to doctor history. Because this is not the history I was taught. It's not the history that's taught now at all. The history that's being taught now is twice removed, at least, or thrice removed, actually, from the reality of these extremely complex and nuanced people but that reality is what drives our social structures right now. Our culture comes out of all of these ambiguities. It does not come out of half-truths and lies in history books written by committees with, a, uh, with an ideological axe to grind. I always think, I mean, for Tamara and I, and I think we were common for our generation, we... We like we didn't get it. I mean, you know, I didn't learn anything about history in school and I wound up writing about it. The textbooks were so awful and the teachers generally were so awful and the kids were so awful. And and we we never felt safe enough <clears throat> to learn and we didn't find much that was was attractive to us. So we found it outside that we found it again yeah. through musicians who talked about, you know, so Patty Smith, for example, who you probably saw at CBGBs. Yes, she, it sure she did. Would, yeah. She was amazing. She would talk about Rumi. She would talk about Rimbaud. She would talk about uh, all sorts of mystical poets. And, and, and so a lot of kids got into that stuff that way. Or as I write about in the book, uh, David Bowie would talk about the Tibetan Book of the Dead for Cream Magazine while he was being interviewed at a hotel while he was on tour. Or it, there were ways for people to find, or their, hip, their big brother was a hippie who was taking acid and reading Timothy Leary's book that was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Right. And, and so, so I look at the podcasts, it, 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 what you were doing, what we're doing right here, this conversation we're having. And and especially the kind of thing that's going on on TikTok, where young people are eagerly discovering and sharing and teaching each other, and and I think that that is going to be very powerful. And there's a way in which schools, which are such an important institutional part of of our world, and are so essential, and 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 we of course we wish that they were teaching history accurately and that they they didn't have agendas that that color how uh life is presented 
because these kids are going to find out, not all of them. I mean, many of them just don't care and never will, but, but many of them will find out otherwise. And they become disillusioned with the institutions because of that, that tendency to, to try to sculpt them into uh, machines to further the power of one or another group. And, but I, I have faith that, that kids will find the information and there's more of it out now than ever. I mean, it's on the internet. They can, they can be by themselves at home and find books yeah. that I found at, the, at Manly, in Manly Hall's collection that maybe at that time, five people had ever seen in the whole world. And now right. anybody can see them. Yeah, you know, I know kids uh, who will tell me that they don't teach history in school. And this is th- these are not super conservative schools that are he- with heavily censored history books at all. These are conventional schools with ordinary history books. And they say you can't, you, they're, that it's not history. One boy said to me, you know, Mr. Strieber, they teach a skeleton. Yeah. It's not history. It's yeah. just a skeleton. Yeah, because I, also, I was. It, oh, go ahead. They, I was they talking take out to the them. meaning. Yeah, exactly. They, they tell you they, memorize the date, right? And or they don't tell you who these people were because history mm-hmm. is not just a history of events; it's a history of character, of people, of personality, yeah. and that is and of belief, and that is uh, so important to understand. But anyway, we're getting free. Those of you on the free side, we are getting to the end of your time with us. And I always hate it when this happens. And I keep hoping that you will actually get off your duff and engage with the website. It's not about getting more things. It's about keeping something like this alive. Because let's face it, I mean, Dreamland is not getting 150,000 listeners a week. It's getting a significant listenership, yes, but that listenership is is interested in people like Ronnie and in esoterica and in the deep journey. So if you're here now and you've listened to all of this, you're interested in the deep journey. Go to unknowncountry.com and get on the deep journey. It will be worth it. Okay, Freewind, Freeside, thank you very much, as always, for being with us. And now we're going to... Can I, can, can I, can I tell them a little something about Orpheus yeah, yeah, just for just, a moment? Just, oh, sure, just a moment. We're going to move on to the Orphic hymns. Ronnie, okay. yeah, please. Okay. Um, well, uh, to give, uh, hopefully, your, your Freeside an abbreviated version of, of, of tying all this together. So the, these hymns date back at least to 600 BC or thereabouts. And, and what they are is a way of tuning our souls to the divinity in nature. Every hymn addresses some aspect of nature or some aspect of the human experience and, and tries to find what is divine about it. Where is the wisdom in it? How do we behave in relation to this area of life? And while doing so, the hymns are appreciating the amazing beauty of life and and really having this this deep immersion in what it means to be a human being in this world. That's why even though they're so ancient, they still resonate so strongly with people. 
they also have a history of creating synchronicities around them. Uh, Ficino, who was called the father of the Renaissance, used to sing them and perform them and, and, and use them truly to inspire the Renaissance. And, and others like Agrippa with the great occultist that everyone has plagiarized for several hundred years. Yeah. He, he referred to them as the most effective form of magic. Ficino called it, uh, said there was no stronger form of magic. But Ficino also pointed out that that was because the magic, the key to magic is love. And the key to the Orphic hymns is love, is loving nature, loving life, and loving the gods. Well, let's end with Hygeia for the free side. And I'm maybe, okay, Hygeia, this is from Orphic hymns. Most honored queen, charming as clear as morning, blessed all mother, bliss bringer, hear us. You make the sickness that afflicts us vanish. You make every home blossom with joy. We honor you. When the world celebrates you, queen, every art thrives. Hades, reaper of souls, resents you for delaying the increase of his kingdom. You taught us that cleanliness prevents harm. You gave us the key to making each day new. Keep away the unbearable distress of sickness. Grace us with shining health. And that goes so much deeper than simply a healthy, strong body. It is a healthy, strong being. You know, I'm not going to turn it off. I can't. Uh, uh, we're going to just go ahead. And if you are on the free side, please subscribe to the darn show and, <laughs> and, and, and to the site so I can keep going. Okay, so uh, I hate turning it off after the first hour. I always have, but at the same time, you know, I can't put the bill myself alone. I, I need help. And um, we've been, I've been doing this since 1998. Wow. A, a, yeah, and in all that time, it has never made money. And I've often been dead broke. I mean, I'm not rich. And uh, found how to scrape together money to keep it going. And that'll probably continue until the end of my days. And I don't really care. I love it too much. Okay. And it's too important. Um, the it, Let's talk about Orpheus and the origin of music. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me is the discovery recently, in the past few years, that um, the Neanderthals, vocal cords were such that they could not form words, but they could make music. They could sing. And singing, therefore, when we first began to raise our voices, even before we were fully, fully human, we raised our voices in song. And so now we go back into the depths of time to the origin of song and the origin of the Orphic hymns. Who was Orpheus? That is such a complicated question. You wouldn't think yeah. it was, but let, I'll give you I a, knew it was complicated, an answer. So Orpheus in myth, uh, we have two great myths about him. 
The first is that he was on the Argo with Jason when Jason went to find the Golden Fleece. And his job was things like playing music in order to protect the crew from the Song of the Sirens because his music was stronger. He would play music if they became depressed or angry and irritable because they'd been out on the water too long. He would interpret the will of the gods. So when they landed on a certain island and there was an earthquake, he said it was the footsteps of Apollo and that that meant that Apollo wanted a, an oracular temple, an altar to be built there. And he was said to have given mystical rites based on sacred songs to every culture that he stopped in. And not in the sense that he was imposing on them his form of this. He would f meet the gods in the area, find out what the traditions of the people were, and then using that in conjunction with his own beliefs and his own deities would create for them their own school of the mysteries, their own temple of purification. So that's one side of Orpheus. The other famous myth is that he was about to get married to Eurydice and she was assaulted by a satyr or by a shepherd. He was uh, chasing after as she was fleeing. She ran into a pit of vipers and was bitten and she died. Orpheus found her and he was heartbroken and he began to lament in music that was so beautiful and so tragic that all of nature began to weep and the gods were weeping and the gods realized that this was threatening all, <laughs> the existence of, of all that they had created. And so they told Orpheus to go to Hades and to sing for him and to beg him to restore Eurydice. So Orpheus did it. He went to the underworld and he went singing his song. And that's how he got past the three-headed Cerberus, the guardian of the underworld, the, the vicious dog. And that's how he uh, he made it all the way to, to the table of Hades, where he was surrounded by all the ghosts of, of the underworld and everyone just listening and and. and really in bliss to, to his lament. And they said that Sisyphus stopped rolling his rock and the vulture stopped eating the liver of Prometheus. And when he finished, he asked to have Eurydice restored to him. Now, some say that Hades granted this. Others say that he was skeptical and did not want to grant it, but that Persephone, his wife, who had also been abducted and who uh, had been chased by Hades as somebody who was trying to, to force her to be his, that she convinced Hades to give Orpheus Eurydice back. But Orpheus was given one rule by Hades, which was, you must trust me and you cannot look back. If you look back before she reaches the sunlight, you will lose her forever. So, Orpheus is walking. He can hear her footsteps behind him, the long path back to the land of the living. He walks out into the sun. He keeps walking. His heart's pounding. He can't hear her. He's assuming that she, she must be there. He keeps walking. 
and he thinks maybe this is a trick and she's not there. He thinks I, I, this must be far enough. And he turns just in time to see her on the threshold of the light, but not having yet entered it. And then she disappears. So he goes back home and he goes up on a mountaintop and every morning he sings to the sun, to Apollo. And Apollo is moved by the songs and he teaches all the mysteries to Orpheus. Other versions of the myths say that Orpheus's mother was Calliope, the muse, and that she taught him the mysteries along with the help of her mother, his grandmother, who would be memory. And so this Orpheus, now that he has these mysteries, men start to gather with him at dawn on this hilltop to be taught. And he changes the rites of Dionysus. He changes it from a, a very bloody, ecstatic kind of cathartic religion into something much more civilized where animal sacrifice isn't even allowed anymore. And this is considered by the women who practice the mysteries of Dionysus sacrilege. How dare he change the tradition? And they were said to have attacked him and tore him limb from limb. His head was said to have floated down a river and to the, out to the open sea, singing the whole way and causing the trees and the river and the birds, everyone to weep. And then the head made its way to a beach on the island of Lesbos, where Terpander would revolutionize music and Sappho would uh, revolutionize lyric poetry. And there Apollo was said to have taken the head of Orpheus and, and put it into a shrine where it became a famous oracle, where the nightingales were said to sing more sweetly than anywhere else in Greece. So those are the myths that we have about Orpheus. Now, all the way back to Aristotle, Aristotle said there was no such person and that this was simply a name that was, was invented for these ideas. And that there were some others have argued there were five Orpheuses. And that's more traditional 19th century scholarship. Older scholarship thought that there was an Orphic church throughout the Mediterranean that pre-existed Christianity and existed for some 400 years. But that was really people with great imaginations putting together evidence that today we consider to be probably not connected to Orphism. And we don't really know all that much about the practices of Orphism. Well, all we know about Orpheus is that he was an, an initiator. That is not just, it's not just the music about him. It's about initiating rites of purification. Wow. Never let it be said that you don't know your stuff. That was wonderfully interesting. And it brings to mind something that has been at the edge of my thought for a long time, and I perhaps haven't ever articulated it, that these stories these ancient stories, which we take as sort of, uh, I don't know, we, we don't, we don't, they, they're too distant from us and they're not empowered in, in the ways that perhaps they were before, especially not among people in the past who believed these individuals were real and the, and understood the forces of the gods very differently. They saw the forces of the gods as, 
as as manifestations or, or saw the gods as manifestations of natural forces. And what you're looking at here in a story like this is the uh, the the movement of the unconscious mind, most of it wordless by its very essence, transformed into characters and entities and places and a narrative so that you can, without putting it into or drying it out, I should say, with what we do with modern psychology, trying to understand, you can feel it in yourself and let it become part of you. And with that said, now I get to the whole idea of hymns and what they do. And in our culture, we have some very powerful hymns in uh, in, uh, in in every great culture. Uh, we have fabulous hymns. And let's talk about the power of hymns and the the reason that the Orphic hymns in particular potentially have such power. Well, sacred music involves two aspects of of human experience that really uh, are great spiritual paths. So one is that you must tune. And by tuning instruments, we learn ratios and we also can tune our souls. And this is an idea that goes back at least to Pythagoras. It probably is Persian and Babylonian. And it, we talk about that in the book, the origins, potential origins of Pythagoras. But Pythagoras is could very well be who was behind all this Orpheus stuff because it was around the time that he was active that we first we get our first reference to Orpheus in literature that survived to us, which is the phrase in a poem, famous Orpheus, and that's it. And there were people, including Aristotle, who thought that Pythagoras was the one who created all the Orphic writings. And of course, other people got in on it too, including the Pythagorean community. But many of the ideas in Pythagoreanism are very similar to ideas in Orphism. And some have said that, that the Orphic religion was how the Pythagoreans reformed the Dionysian religion and made it into something much more civilized and elevated. And so the, the hymns, on one hand, you've got the tuning. So you learn how to, how to tune to the octaves and tune to the ratios and the pleasing ratios, like a third or a fifth, as opposed to the displeasing ratio of a second, which is discordant. And this was related to human emotions, to the, the, the body organs, to the planets, and all sorts of esoteric applications. On the other side of it, we have what happens when we have an ensemble that gets together and everybody performs a different part, possibly on different instruments or on the same instruments. And this incredible sonorous symphony occurs, whether it's primitive instruments or, or modern, that washes over us and, and can really lift our souls and, and open to us vistas that are, are visionary. And, and this, I think exemplifies for human beings how to proceed spiritually, how to proceed, I would argue, even uh, socially or politically. If you want to see how a country can function, go look at an orchestra. 
where everybody's doing what they're good at and everybody's given the equal respect. And only when everybody is functioning together beautifully and fulfilled in what they're doing, can we have that thing that happens when the orchestra is playing a beautiful piece of music. And in the same vein, each of us is faced every single day with how do we tune up? If we wake up and maybe we've had a nightmare or we're, we're haunted by some event that occurred that troubled us. And how do we tune up for the day? How do we reconnect with, with our own spirit, with our soul and, or whatever you want to call that, that inner dimension of where there is stability and there is a sense that, that, that we can handle this, that whatever happens, nature will show the way we will find the way we will have the help that we need uh, until it's time to go. But, but until then we will find it. And when it is time to go, that's, that's kind of the ultimate help because then we are liberated from the great laboratory and we get to go study the findings of our most recent experiment. So I think that music throughout history has, has had that impact for those reasons in part. Also, you know, all nature sings from, from crickets to around here. It's funny because we have this, we have some large coyote packs that hang around in the canyons here and and they're so stealthy that I've had them come up right behind me in my garden and and just notice them because there was a slight movement you don't even know that their territory is here until there's a siren and they all kind of go nuts and start howling at the moon and they can't help it they're they're singing and they give away where they are. They, they, yeah. you suddenly realize how many of them there are. And they're in this kind of ecstasy of, of being and, and communicating with each other. And so uh, song is, is this, this sacred, it, it seems to be how uh, the soul communicates. And it can be in very dark ways. You can have very destructive songs. You can have cathartic songs. So, my band, Lucid Nation, most of our work, not all of it, but most of it was cathartic. It was about exploring really ugly aspects of society in very detailed ways, both lyrically and in the sounds that were being produced to create those feelings. And these days, it seems redundant and, and everybody knows about this stuff. But back then, you know, we scared a few people into vegetarianism here and there and <laughs> with our song, The Sun Doesn't Rise in the Slaughterhouse. But but we we're that was catharsis. And then there's songs for uplift, songs that just you hear them and you just feel like everything's okay and harmony is restored. And Pythagoras, and then after him, many, many years later, Ficino, again, the father of the Renaissance, these are people who used music in order to heal illness, to heal emotional traumas. They they really had concepts of you know, write a song in this mode and sing about this thing and this key and do so when the astrology is correct and you can heal somebody of something that's been afflicting them and and taking away the, the their well being. So and the and they did try to apply this in a sense politically as well, trying to create the Pythagoreans, a culture that 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 had some of these elements in, in terms of supporting harmony. And and finding uh, a way to to include instead of exclude, so that that way uh, everyone could could benefit, everyone could prosper, 
and and we wouldn't have uh, the sort of uh, tyrants that were proliferating in, in ancient Greece and are always threatening. So even though the Pythagoreans were, were somewhat elitist, they were certainly an aristocratic group and Orphism was probably practiced mostly by uh, aristocratic elements of society. Uh, Plato talked about how there were Orphic priests. They called themselves mystae, the origin of mystic. And they, some of them were, were like our old traveling mediums in America who would read the obits and look for important, rich, dead people and then go to the house and scare everybody about how there had to be a ritual in order to make sure that they were going to be okay in the afterworld. Otherwise, they would wind up you know, freezing in the mud of Tartarus instead of being in the good place. And, and then they'd sell you books or little gold leaves with the, the, the Orphic formula printed on it and the orphic formula very important and cuts to all that we've been discussing is i am a child of earth and of starry heaven but my race is of heaven and the idea was that when you die you go into the afterlife and you're challenged by a guardian who says who are you and and where do you come from and if you say well i'm ronnie and i come from southern california they point you over there and you get to drink the waters of forgetfulness and you're back on the wheel having another life of deep grief. The milk and, of Nepenthe, yes. Exactly. And then if you, if but the right answer when they ask you, who are you and where are you from, is to say, I'm Ronnie and I am a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. Give me cold water to drink from the lake of memories so that my thirst may be quenched. And then it said they will direct you then to the lake of memory where you drink and you remember everything. You, you keep that past life that you just had and all the other ones that you had and you move on and you never have to go on that wheel again and be reborn as, a, as an infant and go through the, the chaos of living a physical life. So that formula, which is about purification, because the earthly part of us is said to come from the Titans and the Titans hated the gods. The Titans uh, were destructive. They're like, like out of control, natural forces that just relish destruction and unlimited power. And, and, and live within that, so many of us right now. Yes. And, and no matter how, uh, even when they try to do good, they, they create destruction. And, and then, but we are also, partly from Dionysus, because the story goes that the Titans lured baby Dionysus off the throne where Zeus had placed him. Because Zeus loved this baby so much, he literally put him on his throne. And they used what they called toys, which was like a tuft of wool or some apples and various objects, uh, all symbolic. The apples were said to really represent the planets. At the center of it was a mirror and this mirror would draw Dionysus into the material world and the toys would, would draw him into it. And there the Titans cut him up, threw him into a stew and ate him. And Zeus, getting wind of what happened, sent a lightning bolt. And from that fusion of soot and ash that was made of the Titans and of Dionysus, human beings were born. So the gods don't trust us. They don't like us because we're partly Titan and we have to be purified. And so we live all of these lives trying to purify the Titan part of ourselves and reveal 
save the Dionysus in us so that we can awaken again to immortality. And, and so, yes, this is the, the big challenge today is, is how do you, um, how do you awaken from the nightmare that, that this is all there is, that, that the world, there isn't enough for everybody, that evil people will always control the world, that the worst will always happen. And instead open up that divine imagination and, and, and have those discoveries, those eureka moments happen everywhere and transform life dramatically. And that has happened many times in human history where it's shocking how quickly there's suddenly a completely different perspective. And we have the tools for that now because as frightening as AI and robotics and, and uh, even social media is and how destructive it can be, it's also just as much an amazing tool and will will liberate us in many ways, I think, uh, by by increasing our 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 reach and and hopefully uh, we'll survive long enough for enough of us to to discover and innovate and redesign and and renovate and restore. I always love when I hear, for example, they say that if you want to stop global warming, the best thing to do is plant a whole bunch of trees. Well, I hope, you know, even if that's not true, let's plant a bunch of trees anyway. Yeah, uh, why not? <laughs> yeah, we owe them, you know. <laughs> right. Ronnie, we have, we're coming up close to the end of our time together. Okay. And I want to end this, this journey you have taken us through, a dark journey and a light journey too, a brilliant journey, one of the best interviews I think I've ever done. Thank you. Uh, with one of the Orphic hymns uh, in the in your book, your and Tamara's wonderful mm-hmm. book, Artemis, or oh, Artemis. Yeah. yeah. You have many names, daughter of Zeus, revered archer. With your torch, you bring light to us all. In the mountains of eastern Crete, they call you Dictina of the dancing plants. Helper of labor you will never know. Virgin, huntress, fire your arrows and drive our worries away. You are the moon roaming the wilds. Redeemer, fame bringer, nurturer of the young, immortal, yet earthly. Your realms are the forests and mountains where hounds love to run with you when you hunt. For you, girls with pine torches, dance around laurel trees. Hear us, Savior. Banish pain and disease to the most distant mountain peaks. Give us uninterrupted peace. And on that note, Ronnie Pontiac, co-author with Tamara, lucid of the magic of the orphic hymns thank you for a truly extraordinary experience oh thank you so much not just for this but for everything that you do oh well good uh so we're we're happy together you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week 
Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.